The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I am not Josh Nelson. I am Jim Margulis, managing editor of SoxMachine.com. And Josh has the day off because it's time for my annual conversation with Keith Law of The Athletic, which recently published all of his lists, his top 100 prospects, his organizational rankings, and most pertinent to our interests, his top 20 White Sox prospects. He joins us now to talk about that White Sox farm system and to answer some questions, yours and mine, about why they are the way that they are. Keith, thanks for joining us on the Sox Machine podcast. Last time we talked at this point last year, the White Sox ranked 30th on organizational farm rankings list, but it was kind of a fun 30th, an interesting 30th, whereas in the past, the White Sox have had dreadful 30ths, and this wasn't that. But now they rank 25th or you know bottom five or six across you know all lists, and it feels disappointing, and I'm trying to figure out if it's the soft bigotry of low expectations, or should we have actually expected more progress? I think a little of both. I think it's fair to say you expected or wished for more progress, but there was some progress, certainly. Um, I think that if you look at the very top of the system, it's better. I mean, they moved their 28th in my rankings, which doesn't feel like a lot, but I also think that the trend line is pointing generally up for the system and particularly for the top few players within the system. Colson Montgomery's breakout last year and, and especially him coming in, and showing he's just a much more advanced hitter um, in in multiple meanings of that term. But notably, I'm thinking in terms of overall approach at the plate and pitch recognition, which was not expected. Certainly not something I expected. I can't speak for the White Sox. Mm-hmm. Um, but so there was progress. There's just maybe not the kind of broad progress you were looking for and the, the kind of, hey, this you know fourth rounder took a nice big step forward, the kind of thing that that seems to keep happening for Cleveland, for example, which I'm sure White Sox fans mm-hmm. are extremely aware of. Mm-hmm. You're not having that. And I could understand White Sox fans saying, why can't we do what they're doing? And that's a fair question. Yeah, I think the other thing that might color White Sox fans' opinion of the farm system is that we looked at it this winter in terms of like, who can the White Sox trade? Who would be interesting for other teams? And while the White Sox have some interesting prospects, some nice guys, it seems like there are players that other teams also have. 
I think that's fair. Um, I think that it would be fair to say the White Sox have enough prospect capital to make one significant trade if they wanted to. Um, Mm -hmm. That might require trading Colson Montgomery, and I think they really don't want to do that. And I kind of understand. I think Montgomery is probably the one guy in the system where I'd say, unless I'm getting an absolute superstar, unless Juan Soto is coming back, I'm not trading Colson Montgomery. And, you know, I say that I think we talked last year. I was a skeptic on Montgomery. I had not seen him personally before the draft. I had talked to lots of teams who had, and um, R&D folks were a little skeptical because he was a bit older and there were questions about the quality of competition. It's all gone. He's, I think this kid's got a real chance to be a star. He might be a top 10 prospect at this time next year. That's the one guy I might clutch a little close and say, Juan Soto would better be coming back if I'm going to trade him. But I do think out of the, you know, the Ramos, Colas obviously is, is a big leaguer right now, Jose Rodriguez, you know, Noah Schultz, even though he was just drafted, he's, he can be traded at this point. And there were certainly teams that thought he was a first round talent. You could do something. You you might be able to do one thing and then you'd be spent. Hmm, you could do gotcha. one thing. With, with Colson Montgomery, is there anything he can't do? Is it more about like shoring up his game as the uh, competition uh, gets higher? Uh, there's wide discrepancies among folks I talk to about where he's going to end up. And it's funny, more than one person dropped the Corey Seager comp on him. And I told, I get it. And, you know, you've, you you know, I've talked for years. I don't do a lot of player comps. Mm -hmm. I get it. There's a lot of Corey Seager there. I I mean, in, I actually think Colson's swing is a little bit better than Seager's was at age 19, 20. Corey made some swing adjustments when he was in high, I think he was in high A. And then he really, really took off. But, um, the big question I think folks have on Montgomery is where is he going to play? I'm actually on the high side. I don't rule out him playing shortstop. He, his actions okay. and his hands, when I saw him, it, it was I was like, wow, why is anyone questioning this guy off, moving off shortstop? Now, I have shorter looks. Right? I don't go sit on a team like a typical pro scout, especially with the new schedule. They'll go sit on a team for six days, You know, especially for a shortstop. They, you know, they should see 30 to 40 plays, and they'll see a broader mix of plays. So I defer to them. Typically, and you know, I acknowledge there's a good chance this guy moves off because he's too big, or maybe he, as he gets a little bit big, because his frame is big, as he gets a little stronger, heavier, maybe he slows down a bit. But I saw no current reason why I'd have to move this guy off shortstop. So to me, it's less a question of where does he play ultimately, and more let's see how this progresses. Maybe he can stay at shortstop. Corey Seager stayed at shortstop a hell of a lot longer than anybody expected, myself included. Hmm. Uh, like he ranked 25th on your list. Brian Ramos did not rank on your top 100, but you said in in chats and such that he's uh-huh. you know just off the radar a little bit. Uh, yep. But reading the write up and and my own thoughts is that like he's he's refreshing in that he doesn't seem to yet have a fatal flaw. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. Um, the one thing I acknowledged in the in the capsule I wrote within the top 20 was he gets a little too pull heavy, um, even though he has real power the other way. He does not have, meaning he doesn't have to pull just to mm-hmm. get to that game power. And I think, and I mean, I think it's 25 homer power at his peak. Assuming he hits enough to get there, right? That is, a, that is, a, I'm talking about it like a, if everything works for him as a hitter, that's the kind of power upside he ultimately has. That to me is relatively small as fatal flaws, well, not fatal flaws, as flaws go. That's a small one. We can work with that. Most player development folks will say that's something we can work with. We maybe not necessarily straight out fix, but something we can definitely uh, improve. If the player is willing and open, we can 
make that better and allow that player to, because that to me, that is a case of it makes Ramos a better hitter. And then that in turn unlocks more of the power. If he's just pull heavy as he gets to the majors, he'll probably still have some value, but he's ne- not going to get close to a ceiling if he continues with that approach. And mm-hmm. that to me is the only real big thing. And it's, as I said, we're not, this is not a projection guy. This isn't some, you know, 19 year old, you're waiting for him to fill out. This is kind of close to what he should look like and what he'll be. And it's these smaller changes in approach that will allow him to get to that ceiling. With the criticism of pull heavy, one thing I'm wondering is we saw the White Sox last year be hurt by the debtor baseball. Like a lot of their guys, Aloy mm-hmm. Jimenez and Andrew Vaughn, you know, they were drafted or signed and, and they've been ranked highly because of their opposite field power. But we saw a lot of the opposite field power end up on warning tracks. So for me, <laughs> I'm wondering if like in the case of Ramos that he's inclined to pull the ball. If that's actually a good thing, I mean, it has to be tamed down, but I, it's almost refreshing to me to hear like, oh, he pulls the ball too much versus like, oh, he counts on his opposite field power leaving the yard. Right. You don't want him to be like Kevin Newman, who was a favorite of mine as a prospect, but was so, has is still so locked into trying to go the other way, not even for power, just to hit, but that he doesn't hit the ball hard, right? Because you're just, mm-hmm. obviously, you're not likely to hit the ball as hard. For me, it is, I mean, Ramos has shown power the other way. But I also tie that in overall to hitting, just generally hitting. And by the way, you know, he spent most of last year at high A. So he was using the minor league baseball, hitting the minor league baseball most of the year. Double mm-hmm. A is where they start switching to the major league baseball, which is a whole ridiculous thing we can talk about maybe some other time. But for me, this <laughs> is about ensuring Ramos is the best hitter he can be first and then going for the power. And if that means a matter of, look, I'm getting pitched away, I'm going to go the other way and it's singles and doubles but that allows me to get into better counts better situations shows pitchers they can't just attack me away with impunity they start to come maybe middle in a little bit more and then i decide which pitches to try to pull that is what i'm talking about with with ramos's approach and i still think that even if we assume the baseball stays the way it is which is never a safe assumption when rob manford is in charge Mm -hmm. i still think that allows ramos to be that 20 to 25 maybe probably closer to 25 home run guy at his peak this has all been very pleasant so let's let's talk about oscar colas here (laughs) since that was a point of (laughs) contention among white Sox fans and actually your blurb wasn't you know, really bad about him. It was actually more encouraging, mm-hmm. but you did leave him off the top 100 prospect uh, list. And I think there's a little bit of conflict there when it comes to White Sox fans, just because uh, the White Sox are counting on him for at least some production this year. And mm-hmm. is that mutually exclusive, a guy off a top 100 prospect list, but also can contribute meaningfully this year? Or is there a case where like he can, his ceiling is just limited to whatever he does this year and not a whole much more down the line? Yes, I, I think that's exactly right. I don't, I'm not down on Colas. I think he's a regular. I just kind of think that's probably all he is. I think he's probably a low OBP guy with some power who plays the corner outfield spot. And that's, it's tough to be more than an average regular with that particular skill set. He is a big, big fastball hitter. Um, and I think even with the big velocity he's going to see in the in the majors, that's not going to be an issue for him. I think we're going to see him, you know, don't be surprised if he's turning on 97, 98. Um, but I think now that he's going to face pitchers who have better quality off-speed stuff and are better able to use and locate their off-speed stuff, there's going to be some swing and miss. There's going to be some weaker contact to go with the very high quality contact. And that's going to drive his OBP down. And if he were a player up the middle, he'd probably still be a top 100 guy. But when you combine Mm -hmm. that with the fact that he's a corner bat, the threshold to be an above average regular um, offensively is quite a bit higher. 
he's a little older for a prospect on my list. That's that all worked against him. He is one of those guys where he's on your top 100. Sure. I have no objection. I don't think he's bad. I don't think there's mm-hmm. anything particularly wrong with him, but what you see is kind of what you get here. Um, you know, and I wonder if there's a little bit with White Sox fans where, you, you know, you see Luis Robert and you think, you know, and it, they're just so, you know, obviously they came into the system the same way. They're so different just as people physically and how they're mm-hmm. built and how their tools are that this is a totally different type of player. And don't let your, um, don't let Colas be a disappointment because you're hoping he follows in Luis Robert's footsteps. They're just very different sorts of players. And if Colas turns out to be nothing more than a dead average big leaguer for the next five, six years. That's a huge win for their international department. That's a great, great signing, and you should be very happy with that. Yeah, I think uh, two reasons I'm I'm a little bit bullish on Colas and, and more than you is one, that he's mm-hmm. an actual right fielder, and the White Sox have played Andrew Vaughn and Gavin Sheets on right field. So yeah. to see Colas out there is like great. You know, he, yep, he'll look right? like a gold glover by comparison. <laughs> like Jason, ha- Jason Hayward's out there suddenly. Yes, exactly. Uh, The other thing is that my in-person looks for Colas were against lefty starters. And at first I was disappointed because like, you know, that, that lessens the chance that you're going to see like a 440 foot bomb that will, I can get video on Twitter and it'll get a lot of likes and such. So that that hurts there, but watching him against lefties, like he was under control against lefties and like the numbers, you know, if you just scout the stat line, his, his production Mm -hmm. was actually really good against lefties, a little bit less power and more strikeouts versus walks, but like the bat to ball was there. And that kind of jibed with what I saw. So it kind of gives me the sense that he can adjust his swing against higher competition or tougher situations. Whereas like a guy like Luis Mieses, for example, is like a classic lefty platoon bat. So I invite you here to yuck my yum, if you will. And uh, just, you know, let me know if I'm being like, if there's anything I'm not seeing with that assessment, but that's something that gave me a little bit of encouragement to, you know, maybe there will be some learning, you know, a learning curve along the way, but he, to me, at least he shows an example of understanding when the odds are against him and adjusting accordingly. Well, I think that's fair. And that Colossus is an everyday player. And yes, this is clearly a platoon bat. Like I don't have a platoon concern about Colossus. I think okay. he'll hit a little bit worse against lefties, but I'm not, I did not write him up or rank him as a guy who would have to be platooned. And trust me, like that comes up with a lot of players. And I often get a lot of grief from fans who are like, how can you say that Colton Kowser won with the Orioles? Like he's pretty bad against lefties. He was last year, especially as he moved up the chain in the Orioles system. Hey, that's a big deal. Yes, a lot of players eventually make that adjustment as they get more reps against left-handed pitchers. They don't all do that. And Mm -hmm. when you're a hitter, like I don't want to go like too far in the Kowser rabbit hole, but Kowser's issues very specifically are the off-speed stuff. He's seeing off-speed stuff in general, even from right-handers. But what do you think he's going to see from lefties? It's going to be, they're going to breaking ball him to death. With Colas, that's not a thing. Yes, he'll be a little bit worse against lefties. Most left-handed hitters are, but it's not going to be, I don't think it'll be anywhere near enough to even consider platooning him. You'll probably Mm -hmm. just get less hard contact, less power, but he can still get the bat on the ball enough, put the ball in play enough. And obviously if you, if you can do that, you put yourself in a situation where maybe you get ahead in the count and the guy throws you a fastball out over the plate, or you get a hanging breaking ball and you do something with it. That to me is what, that's the kind of player Colas is that allows him to be a regular and just does a, t- a lot more damage against right-handers because obviously he has the platoon advantage. I think my concern with him specifically is along the lines of like Avi Garcia or Yohan Moncada in the sense that 
probably too talented for AAA if they're there and the hard lessons are going to be learned in that last uh, step. And that just might not uh, be on the timetable. The White Sox need to actually contend this year, which is not his fault. It's more an organizational mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, I think that's all fair. And, you know, this is a challenge with um, particular, particularly with prospects coming from Cuba who are not 16, 17 years old. And, and this is changing, right? Cause we're not seeing the older players defecting. Now we're getting when Cuban uh, players sign as free agents that much more often now they're, they're teenagers coming over the same way that Venezuelan and Dominican prospects come over. But for a while, we've had a lot of these, the non-elite Cuban free agents would end up sort of in that nether world between, well, we can't just send this guy back to double A or triple A because he's older and stronger and just too good for it. And then sometimes they'd, you know, you don't have that intermediate level for them. You can't follow a typical development plan for a player who comes into professional baseball and he's already 24, but hasn't faced, say, higher level pitching to that point. So that is, you know, I think that's a very reasonable argument. Um, I also think that for the better, this is changing because now that we've most of the older Cuban uh, free agents are already here and have already signed. And so we're the pipeline of Cuban players coming into major league baseball or coming into organized baseball looks very different than it did even five years ago. We'll have more with Keith law after a word from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, speaking of Cubans and the other ranking that raised an eye for me was Norhe Vera. You had him at 16th in the organization, and I'm kind of glad you ranked him there because <laughs> at the end of the season, like the looks were pretty bad. Yeah. Like yeah. It, it was, I saw like, you know, kind of, you know, when he came into the system or came stateside, like there was, you know, talk of him hitting like high nineties in the DSL. And he did that early on in the year, but at the end of the year, he was, he looked like he was like low nineties, like 92 and bad control and not even command, but more control. And just like, I could see if that was your only look or you're trusting that more than like the early uh, farm reports that there might not be a whole lot there. Yeah. That's my fear. Um, And because they barely pitched him and I understand why they barely pitched him. Sorry. That's not a criticism of the white Sox, but it's more like, Hey, you're throwing like two innings and out two or three innings per outing. And you still can't hold your stuff through the year. Like that's the it just just straight up holding velocity. Never mind anything beyond that. That to me was hugely concerning. By the end of the year, yeah, he was in when he got to when obviously they brought everybody up to Birmingham at the end of the at the end of the season. And he's 90-92. The breaking ball is below average at that point. As you said, he was he walked more than a man an inning in his eight innings there. Um 
everything was bad, actually. I mean, he should probably be off the list entirely, but one, it's not a very strong system. So, you know, the back of a top 20 on a on a below average farm system is not going to look great. And also it's like, well, this guy used to be better, right? He did mm-hmm. throw harder at one point. Maybe something was going on that we don't know about. I want to hold out the, that tiny bit of hope. If he shows up and he's 97 again this spring, you'll say, all right, let's pay attention to this one. See if he's still throwing 97 in June or July. And can they expand the workload a little bit? There's still a lot of questions to be answered, but I don't want to write him off completely. I will agree with you though. It's pretty freaking disappointing, actually. I, I If nothing else, I thought, well, this, maybe this guy just goes to the pen and kind of moves quickly because it's, you know, it was in the DSL, it was supposed to be two pretty good pitches and he didn't have either of those this year. What did you think of Project Birmingham? It's really interesting. Um, I love the idea of getting all those guys together and and you know trying to build relationships with the players and so you know the hope is a lot of you guys are going to end up playing together in the big leagues at the same time and you can kind of concentrate your coaching a little bit at the end of the season on your most important players your your best prospects um you know I always worry and th- this is a player to player thing but I always worry about pushing a player to a level for which he's not truly ready. And I think that's more true of hitters than of pitchers. And so, you know, maybe that's not best for everybody. You know, is it great for someone if you send him there at the very end of the season, even if you tell him, don't worry about your performance, you know, he goes one for 24 with 12 strikeouts. Like, you know, most players would be a little bit upset about that. Now, maybe they just shake it off. You know, that depends on the kid, right? Some kids would be like, whatever, I'm a superstar. I don't care. You don't want to end up, a kid, have a kid go home for the winter and have that kind of hanging over his head. But that's about knowing your players. And I will always defer to a team. They know their players and I don't. So I will defer mm-hmm. to a team's decision to do things like that while acknowledging and just sort of in the abstract, that is a possibility that that it could adversely affect specific players. Yeah. The one thing I noticed when I was there at the end of the year is that there are so many people in the dugout. Like it looked like the Mormon Tabernacle <laughs> Choir when uh, right. the, the Barons were hitting. So I wonder if that's something that just it, it felt different enough to where the results, even if they were poor, uh, really won't register as like a you know a typical minor league environment, and they're able to shake it off. Um, well, like West, guy, look, oh, sorry, can I just just throw in like yep, West Cat sure. is a good example of you know obviously disappointing first year, second round pick. Everyone thought he would hit. I mean, amateur scouts, everyone was was on this guy. He did not have a great year. And then they sent him up to Birmingham and he punches out almost half the time and hits mm-hmm. a buck 70 with like, do I know? I don't know Westcath. Maybe he's fine. Maybe he's like, maybe he's you know, super confident or maybe he's just a rockhead. And is I don't know. I don't care. I don't know the player, so I don't want to over. But that is the thing I look at and say, Ugh, I hope he's okay. Right yeah. now, you don't want that to end up hanging over a guy's head through the winter and he decides to change something that he doesn't actually need to change. I'm not giving up on Westcath. It just might take a lot more time. Maybe, maybe he's not a prospect, but you got to give that guy time. Maybe that's the kid I don't call up to double A. But then of course there's the, the, you know, then there's the risk. He's like, why didn't I get called up to double A? Everybody else got called up to double A. Like you create this set of, they're not even problems, like a quandary, a series of quandaries there um, that aren't there if you don't do Project Birmingham. So I, I'm not criticizing it. I think it's a really interesting idea. I love when teams try things that are different. And certainly the White Sox have not been one of those teams um, up until very recently. So good for them for trying to innovate. There's also risk. There's risk in any innovation. And it is hard for me to see like a line like West Cats and not get a little worried about that particular kid. See, you do care. You don't hate the White Sox. 
I don't hate the White Sox. And you know what? I I like players. It would be, I would be in the wrong line of work if I didn't like players. Yeah. Well, here's one player I like because, you know, I'm not a scout, but Mm -hmm. when I can notice a difference, it's fun for me. So like Lenin Sosa, I went down to Birmingham Mm -hmm. when he started to produce and I saw him, you know, side angle and thought like, oh, I know what's different. Like, you know, and then I look back at old footage and like, uh, you know, it's fun when somebody like me can see it, but he looks so much stronger. The legs look so much more in the swing. Like my dad would say he's putting his pants into it. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like, you know, whereas the year before, like it was all kind of handsy and he was kind of just like, it looked like he was defensive, like trying not to get in two strike counts. I saw him take two strikes in a row, which I'd never seen. Oh my Uh, God. Yeah. He ended up striking out, but like, I took that as a good sign. Like, Hey, you're you're looking for a pitch. Um, yes. but you know, so, you know, you ranked them, I think fourth or fifth and, uh, you kind of like Jose fifth. Rodriguez going back and fifth. Yeah. Jose Rodriguez is right in front of him. Um, yes, but correct. like, what does he need to do to like close the last mile? Because he's pretty close. And like, there is a chance, like if he improved once he can improve again. Yes, I agree with that. And, you know, first of all, huge credit to Chris Gatz and the White Sox player development staff. That's a big change, right? And as you pointed out, this is a different hitter. Right? They made pretty significant changes to his swing mechanics, uh, particularly allowing him to get get his pants into it. I like that expression. You know, I would always right. say get his lower half into it because I don't yeah, want to be like oddly. Credit marvelous for that one if you if you. Yes, use it. that's excellent. Um, and so, and they did. And it's you know, it's also there's a lot that goes into that. Looking at the kid and saying, "There's more power in there. Let's try to get it out of you." And then they figure out a plan, and then the kid executes too. And I I agree with you. A player who's made one adjustment can make further adjustments. I always believe that. Nothing nothing better indicates your ability to make adjustments than you're having had made adjustments previously. For Sosa, it the, the thing he needs to do is never going to be a high OBP, he's never going to be a high walk guy. It's fine, right? I'm not actually despite being, you know, in many people's mind I'm a stat head, it's not just about the walk total. He needs to just stay uh, stay get into better counts. He's too aggressive. He's too aggressive early in counts. You saw him take two strikes in a row. Like, I hope they give him a plaque after the game. Like, that's good job, <laughs> Lennon. Like, we that's what he needs to do. It is a plan at the plate rather than, to, you know, I don't want him taking to take. It's never going to work for him. He's clearly not that kind of player. But he is, and I mean, I see a ton of these guys every year where it's swing early and often. I got, I, I can hit this, whack. And, you know, often it doesn't, it's not whack, right? Then it's like, or he just misses entirely, and that you know, Sosa should just look for look for a pitch where you can do damage. That's it. If you're doing that and you're still posting, it's you know because of where he plays and because he's got power, that guy could have a 290 OBP and still be an average everyday player. And I think that's his. I, I like to call that a reasonable ceiling, right? There's always some ceiling beyond that where it's pie in the sky and everything goes great and. That's the hundredth percentile outcome. Sort of his ninetieth percentile outcome is what mm-hmm. I just described. The OBP is still not good, but he's making better decisions. He is patient enough early in the count, gets himself into a situation where he sees something he can do. Like I said, like he, he can do damage. That doesn't have to be out of the park. Just put yourself in a position to get a pitch that you can hit hard. And if he's doing that more consistently, because that's the one thing he's really not still not doing. Kind of impressive that he hit twenty four homers even as is. But that's the thing that gets him from right now. I think he's a big league bencher, bench player, gets him from that to being a regular. 
To wrap up our tour of uh, the White Sox farm system as individuals, Noah Schultz uh, obviously did not have any results uh, to go off of last year professionally and, and very few mm-hmm. at the amateur ranks because of mono. But Correct. One, one question about like when it comes to the White Sox and, and high school arms, um, yeah, you can tell me if this is a, a White Sox specific problem or a just a, a prep arm problem is that like when it comes to the guys the White Sox have drafted from the prep ranks uh, in, in previous years, it seems like they have a hard time actualizing the draft day reports. Like I'm thinking with like Matthew Thompson, Andrew Dahlquist, they were supposed to be good athletes, but they're not resulting in athletic deliveries or repeatable deliveries. Jared Kelly was supposed to have like a hospital and durability has been a, a real big problem early on. Even like going back to like Spencer Adams and Tyler Danish, they never added velocity mm. uh, that mm-hmm. was expected. And so like, is this a case where this is always the risk with prep arms or do the White Sox have a bigger problem than most and getting them on the right track out of the gates? They just haven't had enough of those guys for me to generalize. I mean, the three guys you mentioned, Thompson, Dahlquist, Kelly, that's basically, I think, in the last five years. That's all that maybe even longer than that because Adams and Danish were longer ago. And Tanner um, McDougal had uh, Tommy John. He had Tommy John, right? And I'm, that's a guy to watch for this year. I'm really curious to see what it looks because it was getting pretty good and then he blew out. So I'd really like to see, you know, I, I'm still got hope for that one. I mean, I think it's fair to look at the Thompson Dahlquist. Those guys were the same year and say that really didn't work. And those were two very different kinds of high school arms. Dahlquist was supposed to be sort of the more polished command and nothing's plus. And he comes in, he does throw a little bit harder, but the command is just like he left it in high school. And Thompson is still pretty athletic, doesn't really translate much into the delivery. And the stuff has been kind of more up and down. He's the better prospect of the two at this point. I don't know what we're doing, what to do with, with Dahlquist right now. And I actually think Kelly... It's not a great looking year if you just go off the stat line. It's like, oh no, this guy's actually trending back in the right direction now. And mm-hmm. I don't know what he is. In the long term, there's still like he could still never get out of double A, but I have hope for him that I didn't have a year ago. But to your broader question, no, I don't think this is a general White Sox problem. High school pitchers are, it's just a terrible demographic, particularly up top, right? You want to take that high school pitcher in the sixth round who, who your area scout, you know, got a bunch of looks and knows the kid real well. All day long, you take that guy. It's the first round, top 40 picks, wherever you want to draw that line, where it's it, they have higher risk and the opportunity cost is that much higher. And that was, I was not a huge fan of the Schultz pick. He may turn out to be great. Obviously, if he stays healthy all the way to the big leagues, he's a 6'9 lefty with a really tough look. That's mm-hmm. like hitters are not, that is going to be a very uncomfortable at bat, especially for left handed hitters. So I like him for what he is. But he's a high school pitcher, and he's a super tall pitcher. We've had very few pitchers that tall be able to stay healthy and work as starters in the big leagues. Only a couple in Major League history have been able to do that. So the odds are really against him. The upside is definitely there. But I didn't love the pick just really for those specific reasons. That that is, They they went into a high-risk demographic to begin with and then took a high-risk guy within that high-risk demographic. You know, as always, before I let you go, we always wrap up with a book recommendation. My New Year's resolution was to get back into reading since my kid is now 14 months old and I can actually plan a little bit in terms of how my (laughs) overnights go, which is great. So I'm reading the Lincoln Highway right now because I needed a novel that just, you know, carries me through it versus a nonfiction where I just might hit a wall because it's too dry. So do you have any recommendations for what's next on my book list or for others? Sure. Um, actually, the last novel I finished was I'd never read uh, Schindler's List, originally published as Schindler's Ark, but it's the book that inspired the movie. And there's quite a bit more in the book. And it was very good. 
um, you know, obviously there's a lot in there that's just kind of heartbreaking to read, but it's a it's really well done. It's from 82 or 83 or so. And somehow I just had never read it. Mm. Um, but in terms of an actual recommendation, the so there's I, I do enjoy sci-fi and fantasy books. And um, there's a book called A Master of Jinn, D-J-I-N-N, by P. Jelly Clark, um, which won the Nebula Award for Best Novel last year. And um, I greatly enjoyed it for a lot of different reasons. A little bit of a steampunk setting. It is set in a, you know, sort of an alternate world um, in Egypt uh, around the turn of you know, two centuries ago, I guess, where it, that is a setting that is generally, if it's done, if it's been done in fantasy or science fiction, it's been very much done from sort of a, you know, white colonialist perspective and sort of looking down on Middle Eastern people as if they're, you know, this is a primitive society. And instead it actually depicts it very differently. So that the change in setting um, with a really good, I thought a really compelling story and some pretty good action sequences too, which is something I, I really appreciate because I just think it's hard to do. It's easy to do on screen. It's hard to do in in prose. Mm -hmm. um, I really enjoyed that. That's the best book I've read so far this year. Well, I appreciate your recommendation and I appreciate your time and uh, always enjoy these chats. Thanks for your hard work. And uh, I imagine you get a little bit of a break before college baseball season starts and you're back at it. I am out in uh, in two days. I will be at a college game. Um, I'm looking forward to it, though. I haven't been to a game since I went to the AFL in October. And, um, you know, I'm going to see some, I don't know if I'll see a ton of first rounders this weekend, but it's a college tournament where there'll be a bunch of potential top three rounds guys. And to me, it's also just like, I'm dying to get back out there. I want to go see some players again and you know, throw myself into this draft class. It's a very good college draft class, which we didn't have last year. And I, I like those a little bit more because I think that, one, they're just easier from an efficiency standpoint. I can match guys up, but readers like those, right? You can you can mm -hmm. see those guys a little bit on TV or they can get to the majors much faster. So there's when there's a nice mix of college players, particularly there are both position players and pitchers in this draft class, I think that's just more fun for everybody. And there's still good high school talent. I'd rather have that mix than like last year, which was just so high school heavy that it was a lot of, hey, this guy's really great. You might see him in four years. See, that's the theme. You always root for players. You like seeing them. You I like do. seeing them do well. If Oscar Colas uh, looks like a top 100 guy after all, you will be celebrating along with everybody. Very true. Thanks again, Keith. My pleasure. That is Keith Law, whose work you can find at The Athletic. He's got top 100 prospects, guys just off the top 100 list, top 20 prospect lists for every team and more, and it's all worth reading. He's also the author of two books, Smart Baseball and the Inside Game, both out in paperback. And you can follow him on Twitter at Keith Law. That'll do it for this edition of the Sox Machine podcast. Josh will be back for Monday's show and we'll be talking about the early spring training vibes unless something else pops up. You can also go to SoxMachine.com where I'll be writing about all that stuff in between podcasts. If you are new to the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to us wherever podcasts are found. And if you like what we do and want to get more, you can support us on Patreon. The Patreon version of this episode features Keith answering a few questions from Sox Machine supporters who also get access to other exclusive content like my top 10 White Sox prospect list and the P.O. Sox mailbags. You can get involved for as little as $2 a month and even less if you support annually at patreon.com slash Machine. The Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com and part of the Blue Wire podcast network. I'm Jim Margulis. Thanks for listening. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. 
If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.